Hello, I'm Dr. Joseph Kern, Senior Pastor of Radiant Life Church. I hope you find this message informative, inspiring, and most of all, spiritually uplifting. And now, let's get into the Word of God. So, today, the five overcoming principles, but before we do it, let's say the prayer we pray every week, the Ephesians prayer that gives us revelation. Put your hands in your eyes, say, Holy Spirit, give me revelation in your word. Open my eyes that I might see wonders in Jesus' name. Forty vision. And everybody said, amen. Come on, high five your neighbor. Amen. That means game on. So I would like to give five important principles in overcoming. I'm going straight into it. No introduction, going right into it. Ready? Principle number one. Principle number one, God will destroy the enemy, but he wants you to cut off his head. Repeat after me. God will destroy the enemy, but he wants you to cut off his head. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. I love this. God says, I'm going to fight the battle. I'm going to win it for you. All I want you to do is to finish it off, to destroy them. In other words, what you need to understand is God knows without him you're nothing. So he'll do everything but the last step. The head, you got to cut it off. He'll kill the giant. He'll do everything. But you finally have to destroy it by cutting its head off. Are you following me? In other words, in this battle, even though the battle is not yours, the Bible says the battle is the Lord's, because it is a union between heaven and earth, God still expects you to do something to exercise faith to show that you're in union with him. Amen? So you need to cut the enemy's head off. In fact, God fights along with you, but you have to do something. That's my point. Even young David... He cut the head of the giant, the Nephilim Goliath, his head off. But Israel still had to do something. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 51 through 53. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. Now, isn't it fascinating that God, through David, killed the enemy of Israel? Goliath, who no man would stand before. And we know it's God because Goliath stood at least 15 feet tall. He was the Nephilim. He was a giant. And David, through the power of God, in fact, he even said, in the name of the Lord, Yahweh, I will tear off your head. And so he does the physical part. God, through David, destroys the giant. But guess what? Even though David won the battle, because of this principle, Israel still had to do something. Look what they had to do. Verse 52, and the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines. Go to verse 43, and they spoiled their tents. So notice, even though David cut the head off the giant, the Philistines still had to do something. They had to rise. They had to shout. In other words, they had to give praise to God and give him thanks. They had to chase the enemy. And guess the hardest job they had to do? They had to spoil the enemy. Now, isn't it interesting? David did all the work and they got to take all the spoil. And isn't that what God has done for you? He has totally destroyed Satan in your life. And all you got to do is take the spoils. Come on. In other words, you got to do something. God has won the battle. But he's saying, hey, get off your butt and do something. At least claim everything that I've taken from the enemy for you. See, God will do everything, but he's not going to make you lazy. Now, pick up your own gold. I won the battle, but go pick up your own stuff. Come on. Are you hearing me? 
And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Look at Colossians 2.15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Isn't it interesting that the Bible says Jesus triumphed over principalities? Now, what does that mean? When Jesus died on the cross, he was in the ground for three days. A lot of people don't know what he did. Well, the scripture tells us what he did was he spoiled principalities. That word literally means to disarm. That Jesus went, in fact, we even know in the book of Revelation that Jesus went to the devil and took the keys of hell, death, and the grave. He disarmed the enemy. And what does he want you to do? He fought the battle. He just wants you to cut the enemy's head off and claim that victory that Jesus already won for you. He already spoiled principalities. He's already disarmed him. He now wants you to give him a left kick, come on, and a right punch and say, you need to completely exit my life. We're not talking about um, um, people. We're not talking about cutting people's head off. We're talking the spiritual battle. You need to tell the devil to get out of your family, get out of your house, get out of your business, get out of your money, get out of your mind and your heart. Cut the head of the enemy off. God has won the battle, but you got to finish it off. You, in other words, you got to enforce the victory that God has already won. I heard about some guys, Japanese guy, who was still fighting World War II 20 years after the war was over. And someone had to tell him, hey, the war is over. Some of you are fighting a war. It was over 2,000 years ago. You need to tell the devil, hey, you already lost. Get out of the picture. Say, stop fighting the enemy and enforce the victory. There's a big difference. And look what 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He already gave you the big V. You have the victory in every case. In other words, Satan isn't as big and strong as you think. He is big and strong, but King Jesus already eradicated his power, and you got him forced to victory. I want to talk about a skinny hero. In fact, that skinny hero, let's show the picture. And she's sitting in the front right here. My sister Denise was the skinniest girl you could ever meet. Even when she stood straight, she looked bent because you could see the curvature of her spine. And brothers can say that. And if you look, she was skinny. Well, one day a group of kids, older kids, decided to ghost ride my bike. In case you don't know what that means, that's when you take a bike, you push it along the street with no rider so to make it crash and laugh at the expense of the owner. So I did what every 11-year-old big boy does, and I cried home to mama. And when I was telling my mother about how these older boys were crash riding my bike, my sister, she, my skinny little sister, you could see her get angry, turn bright red, and she was huffing and puffing out of her breath. And I go, what is wrong with her? And she got so hot with anger, she ran out of the house and headed straight for them boys. And then my pride started messing with me because she did what I should have been doing. Come on, talk to me. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Now, my sister picked fights with me every day. She picked with me every day. But she wasn't going to allow anybody else to do it. Making fun and intimidating me was her job only. In her mind, if they wanted to have fun at somebody else's expense, it was going to have to be some other fool because I was placed on earth for her entertainment alone. You need to find another fool. That's my fool. I watched my sister, and they were taller than her, bigger than her, and she got in her face, and my sister went from 5'2 to 7'2. Come on. And she would poke her, 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 her finger in their faces and told them how dare they do that. And I, all I remember is my sister said, Jojo, get out. Get that bike. 
And I got the bike and, you know, took off. And you know what? She won the battle. All I had to do was claim the spoil. Isn't that exactly what the word of God says? I'll fight the battle, but you need to do something. And I'm trying to tell you, too many of us have not taken the spoil. We're still claiming, we're still whining about the battle. The battle has already been won. You just need to tell them to get out of your life and claim the spoil. It's interesting because God commanded Joshua to engage in battle with the five kings of the Amorites. And that didn't even make sense. One little nation was supposed to engage with five international nations. The kings of the Amorites. And why? To protect the Gibeonites and who they just come into covenant with. And Joshua wasn't sure whether he should do this. But look what Joshua 10, 8. God promises Joshua something. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them unto thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. So he tells Joshua, Go ahead and fight the battle, because I'm going to be with you. And not one man's going to be able to stand before you. You know what's crazy? God literally fulfilled the scripture. And when you find out how he filled up the scripture or, or made it come to pass, it's going to blow your mind. Look what he did. Literally, look what God does. But let's read Joshua ten eleven. Yeah, this is mind-blowing. Let's just read it. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. There were more which died with hailstones they, than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Look up at me. So when Joshua goes against the five nations, before he starts battling, either God or angels literally start throwing rocks from heaven, killing off the enemies of Israel before they even start fighting. Now, you know you have no hope for battle when God himself starts throwing stones coming from the, from the heavens and hitting all your people. God literally starts just throwing stones. I mean, read it. I mean, can you imagine watching this? That stones just start pegging off every man. And he said, no man will be able to stand. That is crazy. Now, watch this. He allowed, he killed off everyone, but he allowed these five kings to exist for one reason. Check this out. Look at Joshua 10, 24 through 25. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings into Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said to them, fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong of good courage, for thus saith the Lord, do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. Let me say that again. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye shall fight. So check this out. God spared the five kings for one reason just so they could put their foot on their necks. And you think this is in the Bible just so we can get excited about Joshua and what he did so long ago? No, that word Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua. It's the same name translated into Jesus. In other words, Joshua represents Jesus and those five kings represent us who are kings and priests. And he's saying, I want you to put the enemy under your feet because even in Romans 16, 19, it says, and soon shall I crush Satan shortly underneath your feet. The devil does not belong looking at you eye to eye. The Bible says, put him under your feet. Every sin, every habit, every wicked plot that the enemy tries to bring, you need to put that thing down and crush its head. In fact, God even reminds Joshua, Joshua prophesies. He says, this is what God will do to everyone who comes against you. That's your promise, saints. Every enemy that comes against you, come on, God, mm, put them under your foot. Are we talking about people? 
No, this ain't your mother-in-law. Come on, talk to me. We're talking about spirit. We're talking about habits and hangups and, and mindsets. Amen. That need to go. Partial victories are forbidden by scripture. I taught you that. That's what God's saying. In other words, you shouldn't be like this with the enemy. The enemy should be under your feet. They're forbidden. Notice what God says in Psalm 1842. Then did I beat them small as the dust before the wind, and I did cast them out as the dirt in the street. This is regarding your enemies, that you're supposed to beat them down to dust. How many know when you beat something down to dust, you can't, there's no DNA evidence. Others, they totally, there's no remembrance. And that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to crush your past addictions and hurts and pains that they're crushed so bad that you can't even remember them anymore. You don't even remember what it's like to be a drunk anymore. You don't remember what it's like to be addicted to alcohol. You don't even remember what it's like to wake up in the bed with somebody you don't even know who they were. It's so been crushed underneath your feet that Jehovah, Jehovah Jesus, has destroyed your enemy. But he wants you to take dominion and put your foot over their neck and crush it. Pulverize it. So our part to war, our part is to war until the enemy has completely been annihilated. God will win the battle, but he wants you to do the final part and cut the head off. Someone can pray for you that all your addictions leave, but you got to now make boundaries and not do it anymore. Someone can cast the devil lust out of you, but you got to stop looking at that crazy stuff online. Come on. In other words, you got to cut the head off. If you got to break your TV, cut the cable, whatever you got to do, you need to cut its head off. Why are you looking at me like that? Amen. So, <laughs> I was going to say something else. Principle number one, God will win the battle, but you have to do what? Cut the head off, finish it off, right? That's your part. Principle number two, God works in conjunction with your will. God works in conjunction with your will. In other words, you can't make someone come out of bondage. You can't force someone to want to make that change. Let's hear Isaiah 1, 18 through 20. Listen to this. Come now. And let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The critical verse is verse 19. Notice, in order for a person to experience deliverance, it's a two-part step. They must be willing and obedient. Look at your neighbor and say, willing and obedient. Many times, let's talk about the willing part. Many times we, as Christians, think we can force our will on our loved ones in order to be saved. We say things like this. Oh, I'm believing by faith that so-and-so will be saved. Well, guess what? You can't change someone by your faith. Faith only moves mountains, not people. You can believe faith for money. You can believe faith for favor. But you cannot, by faith, believe someone coming to Christ like that. In order to get someone saved, that takes intercession. Are you hearing me? There's a difference. Intercession is where you, 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 you get on your knees and you pray for God before God that circumstances are brought to that person that makes them make a choice, whether good or evil. But, but they, have to be, they have to choose. They have to be willing. You can't make someone come to Jesus. Are you hearing me? If that was the case, we'd all be saved. Amen. So faith moves not, mount, um, not, not people, but mountains. Changing people requires intercession. Galatians 4.19, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. 
My point is, if I could force people to be saved, I'd be doing that all day. In fact, even recently, check this out, someone called me up and asked me to cast the devil their, 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 their nephew came over and was totally manifesting. Now, if you don't believe in, in demons possessing people, just hang around me for a while and you will experience that. Because for 20 years I've had, I'm not talking, you know, I'm not talking about nice little things. I'm talking about definitely the dark side of the world, things you don't normally see in a day. And so I can hear the person in the background and I said, well, why don't you call their pastor? They don't even go to our church. I said, why don't you call their pastor? Because I know their pastor. He, I would, but my pastor doesn't know how to cast out the devil. Now, how sad is that when you have a pastor who can't even cast out the devil? And Now, follow me. I said one thing. I said, I won't go over there and cast out the devil, that person. You give him my number, have him call me, and then I'll do something. And that person was, was frustrated that I wouldn't just go over there, but they don't understand the rules of spiritual warfare. I do. Because you cannot cast the devil out of someone unless they're willing. And if he would have called me, that would have showed that he was what? Willing. And now I'm not going because someone asked me to go there. I'm going because he asked me. And now I have the right to take dominion. Now, why wouldn't I do that and just force it? Because I already taught you why. Remember, there's a spiritual rule that says if the devil's cast out and that person didn't fully repent, the devil's allowed to come back with how many? So sometimes you'll go and cast the devil on someone and they know that demon will leave quick because it knows that this person ain't serious and they're glad to leave because they now know they have the legal right to come back with what? And now that person's state is worse than last. But see, I know those rules. I cast the devil out of people who weren't really willing and they were worse than before. So you need to understand, unless a person is willing, you're only hurting them. Now, the Bible says in, 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 in Isaiah 119, if they're willing and obedient. Now, this is where Christians get in trouble. A lot of Christians are willing. They, they came to Christ and they're, and they, and they're willing. They, they have a desire, but they don't move into obedience. We're talking about principles on how to overcome. A lot of Christians are being defeated by the enemy. Yes, they're willing. They got Jesus in their heart, but they won't go beyond Jesus' Savior. They won't move into Jesus as Lord. A lot of you, Jesus is your savior, but he's not your Lord. Lord means to have dominion. Is he truly, does he truly have dominion over everything you do and say? No, because if he did, this church would be 10 times the size. I mean, for all of us. Come on, let's be honest. Thank you for the little clap. I appreciate that. Now, that's the part that gets so many Christians into trouble, the disobedience part. They are willing or they have a desire, but then they don't make the changes that are required for victory, which shows obedience. What I mean? They don't pray. They don't read the word. They don't go to church consistently. They don't fellowship with other believers. They won't let go, get, get, get let go of the old to embrace the new. You know how many Christians come to church where they still do everything they used to do? They just come to church, that's it? It's not enough to just come to a church. A dog can move into a parking lot or into a garage, but that doesn't make it a car. Some of you looking at me like I'm crazy. Just because you come to church don't make you a Christian. You have to go from willingness to obedience. See, we're will losing the battle because we're willing. Oh, one day I'm going to do right. One day, watch pastor, one day. Why can't that day be today? Repent, do right. Start reading your Bible. Start going to church consistently. I've never seen so many people will study everything about conspiracy theory online, but won't come to church and study the Bible. And I have people call me all the time, Pastor, what about the mark? What about this? I go, you don't even know your calling. 
I ain't going to tell you anything until you know your calling. You're actually wasting your time because you're getting ahead of the basic principles. Start forgiving people. Start getting saved. Start being a, a witness to people. Then let's talk about the seven revelations of the angels from revelation and the woes and all that. But until then, you need to go, woe is me, and, and, and get right with God and find out his purpose for your life. Are you, too many of us are trying to get so deep, and we haven't even gone into the simplicity of the gospel yet. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? You know what the end of wisdom is? Obedience. See, you fear the Lord when you start. That's the beginning. But wisdom is completed when you begin to walk in obedience. Come on. Look at Joshua 23, 10 through 11. It says, one of you shall chase a thousand. Look at this. For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you. Now, are you fighting? No, he says he's fighting for you. And, as, and he hath promised you, take good heed thereof unto yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. So who's fighting for you? I want to read a, a story from Corey Ten Boone. Corey Ten Boone, if you're not familiar with her, was she, they made a movie about her called The Hiding Place. And in, during Nazi Germany in the 40s during World War II, she actually was, her and her family were placed in concentration camps, not because they were Jewish, but because they protected Jewish people. And so they treated them like Jews, and they went into a concentration camp. Interesting story. And she became a famous evangelist all the way, and I think she died in the early 80s, maybe late 70s. But she told a story about villages she would visit in the Congo. And I want to read you this, because it reminds me of this, one of you shall chase a thousand. Listen to this. I have experienced this in Africa. This is Corey. At a time when the devil had broken loose and so many terrible things were happening, in the newspapers one could read about all sorts of cruelty, but when I listened to what the children of God had to say, I was glad to hear that God had never left his children in Africa alone and that the devil could not go any further than God allowed. We do not always understand this, but someday we shall. A troop of rebels in the Congo came into a village. The leader asked, what is that house? That is the house of God. He took a stone to throw into it, but at the same moment he was killed by a bullet. The bullet must have been misfired by one of his own people. In another village, the rebels decided to kill all the Christians. They had come together in a hut to discuss this inhumane plan. At that moment, lightning struck the hut and they were all killed. Listen to this. When the rebels advanced on a school, this is the part I love, where 200 children of missionaries lived, they planned to kill both the children and the teachers. Those in the school knew of the danger and therefore went to prayer. Their only protection was a fence and a couple of soldiers, while the enemy, who came closer and closer, amounted to several hundred. When the rebels were, were, were close by, suddenly something happened. They turned around and ran away. The next day, the same thing happened. And again on the third day, one of the rebels was wounded and was brought to the mission hospital while the doctor was busy dressing his wounds. He asked him, why did you not break into the school as you planned? Listen to his response. We could not do it. We saw hundreds of soldiers in white uniforms and we became scared. In Africa, soldiers never wear white uniforms, so it must have been angels. What a wonderful thing that the Lord can open the eyes of the enemy so that they see angels. We as children of God do not need to see them with our human eyes. We have the Bible and faith, and by faith we see the invisible things. But little these children, all they had was prayer and praise. And as they're praying, 200 little children, they're coming against, and some unknown invisible army starts fighting them, just like in the days of Joshua. And many of them were injured, and that's how they found out the story, because angels were actually injuring these folk. Man, come on, talk to me, saints. And you're saying, Pastor, what do I have to do to have a life like that where angels fight my battle? I'm glad you asked. All you have to do is love him. Notice what, what it says right here. 
One, men, one of you should chase a thousand, verse 11, Joshua 23, 11. Take heed therefore unto yourselves that you what? Love the Lord your God. What do you have to do to get God to have a thousand run from you? You just have to love him. The most important commandment is, Hear you, Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy what? Heart. With all thy soul. With all thy strength. When Peter sinned and rebelled and he rejected Christ three times, denied him, did Jesus give him a lecture on how to overcome sin? No. He said, Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times. Why? Because love is the key to walking in victory. Love. You know, it's crazy. You can ask my sister sitting right here. I was the cheapest guy you could ever know when I was a little boy. I, I mean, I just didn't want to spend my money on nothing because we were so poor that I held on to every cent. I was just poor. I never spent my money. And something happened to me when I turned 26 years old and I met this beautiful singer called Bridget Overstreet. And all of a sudden, she was spending my money. All of a sudden, I was, I was going out to eat every day. All of a sudden, I had no money. And I was happy. I had no money. I was happy. And I was like, what happened to me? And even 20 years later, she spends all my money. And I'm happy. How do you turn a cheapskate into someone who's happy to get rid of his money? It's called love. Love will transform you. Love will make you become something you weren't before. And that's what I'm saying. How do I become that? Just love God and watch. He'll transform your character. He'll turn a cheapskate into a, a Don Juan. <laughs> I want to share a story. Another one. To explain this, he'll chase a thousand. I've experienced this many times. One time, I, I was celebrating the release of parole of a friend of mine, a real good friend of mine. And so four of us in the car, four males, two in the front, two in the back. And I'm in the front, and I'm driving, you know, and, and um, I'm on, I said, let's go to my favorite restaurant, the, the, the Chinese restaurant. And so we're going to the, twi- to, the, to the Chinese restaurant, my favorite place. And all of a sudden, some crazy driver drives up on the side of me and starts yelling vulgarities at me and making, you know, sign language at me. And, and just, I mean, just going off. Now, y'all know, I know I'm a pastor, but you know, I'm one of those warrior Christians, I'm one of those that don't put up with disrespect. So I'm not one of those, I'll turn the other cheek. I'll turn the other cheek after I punch you out, okay? And then I'll turn the other cheek. Now, I know that ain't right, but I'm just telling you that's how God made me, and I'm being honest. That's what, so I immediately looked at the side, and I rolled down my, that side window because I was going to have a conversation with this fool. And I told him, I went like this, I made sign language, like, roll down your window, and I go, let's talk. And so the, the guy rolled down his window, and he was all hot and angry, and, and I looked at him, and I said, what gives you the right to talk to me like that or to look at me like that? You don't have to act like that. You don't have to behave that way in order to, to get somewhere in the street. And I, I was lecturing him, and then all of a sudden, the fear got in him. And he began to go, you know what? Yes, sir. You're right. You know what? I'm sorry. I apologize. I am completely sorry. And he goes, in fact, you can go in front of me. And so I said, that's what I'm talking about. So I rolled up my window and I started explaining to all the guys in the car about how even though we're Christians, we have dignity and we don't have to put up with disrespect and that we have to stick up for ourselves once in a while. We have to tell people. We don't have to be mean, but we can exert our influence. And all of a sudden I realized that the car was kind of warm. I had the air conditioner on and I realized um, all the way to my right in the back seat the one who was just paroled out of prison who had arms this big and a big old tattoo, his window was rolled down. He was rolling back up. And all of a sudden, I realized the reason why that guy was so scared, it wasn't because he was looking at me. But the guy in the back with his big tattoo was like, you know, mm, don't mess with my pastor. And so I'm all thinking I'm big and bad and I'm teaching him how to protect himself. But the real truth, they were looking at the big ex-con in the back and said, oh, I picked the wrong car to mess with. Hello. 
And I can imagine he's like there saying, we'll give Pastor the credit. We'll let him be the big dog. But he had his, I mean, you had to see he was intimidating, big dude. How many know sometimes you mess with the wrong car? But how many know that's exactly what God says? I'll, I'll chase a thousand. If he has to use an angel or a big ex-con, come on, talk to me. He'll make sure that this comes to pass, that one of you shall chase a thousand. Amen? And two of you can put what? 10,000 to flight. Amen? Principle number three. Oh, you know what? Let me give you one scripture before we do that. Romans 8, 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors that what? Love us. That, that, love, that, that loved us. Through him that loved us. Notice that victory comes through love. In other words, what I got to do to walk in this principle? Love God and it will happen. Because principle one is what? God will fight the battle, but you have to finish it off. Principle number two, God works in conjunction with your will. What does that mean? In order to overcome, you got to love God with your will. If you love God, if you surrender your will, you love God, you will overcome. Amen? Principle number three. Ready? Repeat after me. It's God's word that gives you power over the enemy, not your words. Come on, look at your neighbor. Say, it's God's word that gives you power over the enemy, not your words. Now, I know we're in a spirit-filled church. And many of you can say, Pastor, we already know this principle. I know it's God's word. Well, I'm going to show you how us spirit-filled people use our words. And you'll never conquer the enemy by doing this. There's a way that you do it. You may not do it the way other Christians do it. But spirit-filled people have a way of using their words and not God's word. And let me break this down. But first, let's talk about how the Bible says darkness will come. But God will enlighten your darkness. Look at Psalm 18, 28. For thou will light my candle. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. I don't care what kind of darkness you're in right now. I don't care if it's the death of a loved one, a failed relationship, a drug addiction. I don't care what kind of dark clouds over you. God promises that he will enlighten your darkness. Now the key, come on, amen. Now the key is, how do we get, my, it's so dark right now, Pastor, I can't even see in front of me. I can't even see the future. Well, I'm, I'm trying to tell you. Here's how he does it. In Job twenty two twenty eight, this is how he lightens your darkness. Thou shalt also decree a thing. Say decree a thing. Woo. And it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. In other words, how do you get God's light to work? You have to decree a thing. Say say a thing. Say decree a thing. The light comes on when you release the word with your mouth. Amen. In other words, how do you turn on God's light? It comes when, it, when something comes out of your mouth. You say something. And what do you specifically say? Look at Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is the lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. How many know that the lamp or God's word is no good until you turn it on? A lot of people have the lamp, but it's not giving no light because you're not decreeing a thing. I hope you just heard what I said. The word of God is compared to a lamp. A lot of you have that lamp, but nothing good's happened because the lamp ain't on. How do you turn on the lamp? It says when you decree a thing, the light shines. What does that mean? When I stopped speaking about my doubts and my fears and my frustrations, my word, and I begin to speak the word of God, all of a sudden the light begins to come on. All of a sudden light will invade the darkness. Come on, talk to me. Mm. I'm about to preach myself happy. Those living in darkness are commanded to speak. Look at Psalm 107 too. Let the redeemed of the Lord, what? Why? Because when you speak, it turns on the lights. And, and, and if you don't believe me, if you go down nine verses later, look what it says in verse nine. It tells you who's supposed to speak. Such as those as sit in what? 
in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction in iron. Notice, he says, those who sit in darkness and those who are bound in iron and you feel like the shackles of death are upon you, he says, let them. That's who he's talking about. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What does that mean? If you feel like you're shackled, like you're under bondage, like the enemy's winning, you need to get some light into your life. The Bible says that the, candle, that the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. And sometimes you start dimming out. How do you light that candle back up? You begin to decree a thing. You begin to speak the word of God over your life. And now all of a sudden, light comes in, and all of a sudden, darkness has to flee. Amen. Wow. So it's not your words that give you power to the enemy. It's whose word? Now, here's how charismatic and spirit-filled people use their words instead of God's word. Are you ready? You battle the enemy with the word of God, not your experiences. Let me say that again. You battle the enemy with the word of God, not experiences. I hope all of you are listening to this because I can't tell you how many times I hear people battling the enemy by what a prophet told them, a prophecy, a word of knowledge, and they're battling by quoting that. That's not how you battle the enemy. Those experiences are for you to believe, to believe God, but that's not how you battle the enemy. Let me show you. In Matthew three seventeen, and then lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, got baptized by John the Baptist. And the moment he got baptized, a voice literally came from heaven and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. A voice spoke from heaven. All hell heard it, heaven heard it, angels heard it, men heard it. And then John even verified by saying, and I saw the spirit of the Lord descending upon him like a dove. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. How many know that that was an experience that is amazing? It's an experience, it's one of Jesus' greatest experience where God publicly announced he was the Son of God. Now check this out. A few days later, say a few days later. The devil comes and questions the word that was given to him. Remember, the word was given to him. You are the what? The son of God. Now, the devil first attack on him is his identity on who the Lord said he was. And let me tell you, the first attack the devil will do with you is who you are in Christ, whose identity you are. And notice what he says. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made red. Notice that the devil's first thing was question the word of God given to Jesus that he was the son of God. He goes, well, I heard you're the son of God. If you are, I don't really believe it. But notice, Jesus didn't question the devil's ability to hear God's declaration. Jesus didn't even mention the moment at Jordan River. He goes, well, devil, didn't you hear what the prophecy said? Devil, didn't you hear what just, didn't you hear God came from heaven? He said, this, come on. Did you hear what I said? He did not give his experience. The devil knew the experience. He didn't say, well, didn't you hear it, Mr. Devil? God said I was. I can't, I can't. No. Jesus looked at him and says, it is written. Oh, come on. You don't battle the devil with experiences. Your own word. You battle the devil with the word of God. You don't bring up your experiences. The devil doesn't care. See, your experiences are there to increase your faith, but it's not to battle the enemy because the devil says, I don't care. I know God exists. I don't care what, I don't care if you saw three angels. I don't care if he told you you're going to be a millionaire. I don't care if he said you're going to lead 20,000. How's that going to beat the devil up? He says, okay, what? So what? No, you need to tell him it is written. Too many Christians, every time they go to that pastor, well, instead of telling me what the word, you know, people say, well, I was prophesied this, I was prophesied, I don't care. 
what I mean, I don't care is that's not what wins the battle. But a lot of charismatics, very few people try to fight the devil. Well, didn't you hear the prophecy? He goes, yeah, and so what? See, the devil only moves at the hearing of the God's word. Not your experiences. I'm glad you had those experiences. You know why? Let me tell you why. Because I can't, you know what people do? They call me, Pastor, I had this experience, that experience. Is it real? I don't know. I wasn't there. I, was, I can't tell you. What if I, yeah, okay. What if I'm lying? I don't know. But I can tell you if what you're saying is the word of God or not. I can question your experience, but I can't question the word of God because it's written. I hope you just heard what I said. He didn't answer the devil's question with his experience. He declared, it is written. He didn't fight the devil with his experiences, but with the written word of God. The next time you're going through a trial and you start telling me all your prophecies, I'm going to kick you. That's not how you overcome the enemy. You need to say, Pastor, I know I'm going through this, but it is written I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. I know I'm going through this and I feel friendless, but the Bible says he that shows himself friendly will have friends. Come on. I know that I'm having this sick sentence, but the word of God says, believe on the Lord God and his prophets and you shall prosper. The Bible says that I'm blessed coming in, blessed going out. The word of God says, and by his stripes I'm healed. So I believe. Well, the Lord said in the prophecy I was going to be healed. So I'm gl- that was to encourage you personally, but that's not how you war. That'd be like a soldier going to battle in the U.S. fighting Germany in World War II, they put down their guns and say, let me tell you, we won a battle back 20 years ago. And they'll say, okay, they're dead. Because that's not how you win battles. No, you need to pull up that machine gun, that word of God. You need to aim and stop talking about prophecies and start aiming the word of God at that person. Some, you got that analogy. Oh, one day we won a battle. So, you're dead. Many people try to go by what they hear God told me such and such. Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. Your weapon is not what you hear, but what he wrote. You better write that down. Your weapon is not what he said or what you hear, but what he wrote. Jesus never said this. I heard God say that. There's no word beyond the word. Too many Christians keep going by the Lord said and not by what he wrote. His mind and will is found in his word. The gifts are the prophets are not your weapons. Prophecies for edification, exhortation, and comfort. It is not your weapon. Any prophecy or gift manifested not found the word, throw it out. I've heard a lot of prophecies. That's just nonsense, to be honest with you. But I believe in prophecy because only prophecies that confirm to the word of God do I move in. I hope you just heard what I said. Let me say that principle again. It's God's word that gives you power of the enemy, not your words. In other words, not your experiences. How many of you have ever heard that? The moment someone's discouraged, well, God said this and that. Okay, and they're talking about their experiences, not the word of God. What someone told them or what they think God told them in their head. You can't trust your own head. I'm about to prove it to you in a minute. God told me that. It might not have been God. It might have been you just saw something else and you wanted to be that too. It might have been you just saw something great and, well, I wouldn't like to be that. How do you know that was God? Is it in his word? I've never, well, yeah, I'll say this. You know, I've had experiences that are supernatural. And every time I was visited by an angel, I always said, where's this in the word? Every time. And if, and if it wasn't the word, it went away. Come on, talk to me. Because it wasn't God's word. Principle number four. You will only overcome when the word of God is in you. Come on, look at your neighbor and say that. You will only overcome when the word of God's in you. 
God wants you to rule over your oppressors. Notice Isaiah 14, 2. At the end of the verse, it says, and they shall rule over their oppressors. Again, God wants the enemy underneath your feet. Beat them to dust. Put your feet on their neck. Cut their head off. But the key to victory is when the word of God abides in us. Look at 1 John 2, 13 through 14. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the father. Now notice it's talking to fathers, young men, young children. And he says, you've overcome the wicked one. How? Next verse. I've written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. He says it again. I've written unto you, young men, because you are strong. And here's how they overcame. And the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Man, how do you overcome the wicked one? By having the word of God abide in you. I don't mean just, you know, casually. I mean the word of God's in your mind. The word of God's in your heart. The word of God comes out of your mouth. You're like Joshua where it says, and you meditate on these words both day and night. Joshua 1, 8. And where the word of God becomes like a sword coming out of your mouth where you're saying, it is written. You know the best compliment? You know when I first got saved, people would complain. Well, I don't want to hear what the word says. I want to hear what, what you think. How many of you have ever been? Right? That's a good compliment. That means I had moved to the point where I stopped saying what I thought and I begin to speak what the word of God says. Come on, talk to me. If anyone ever convicts you of saying the word of God too much, hallelujah, that's where you want to be. People should be saying, I don't want to hear what God says. What, is, what do you think? You say, it doesn't matter what I think because I'm a fool. Come on, amen? So the key to victory is what? The word of God, what? Abiding in you. You know what abiding? It means it's living with you. I want to share a story that illustrates this point. Last year, we had two special offerings called the Reset Project where on Christmas, I encouraged everyone, no matter how much money they had, rich or poor, to give the same amount, $1,000. I then did the same thing on resurrection service or Easter service, as some people know, to give $1,000 because we needed a lot of money to get this building. And what's interesting is I gave everyone that challenge. I didn't care how much money you had or not. It's an act of faith. It was the number that God gave me. Now, very few people actually did that amount. But, you know, that's between you and God, whatever you give. I don't know who all that was because I don't really look at that. But I do know that not very many people because I know the final amount. But here's what's interesting. One of the persons who did give both times was a single mother who doesn't make a lot of money at all. And she literally had to plan weekly on, so that she could have that thousand come. And, but here's what she did. She decided to apply the word of God, like we say when we give, and to claim a promise. And here's what she said. She said, Lord, I will find that money and I'll give it even though it hurts because she, she didn't have that kind of trust in me. She says, but I want you to double my salary at work. And so here it comes, Christmas, she gives that thousand, no salary change. Here we come this year. This past Easter, gave a thousand, no change. But a few days after that, maybe even a few weeks, all of a sudden her boss calls her in. And her boss says, I want to talk to you. And the boss gave her a promotion and made her the ruler over that area. Come on, talk to me. And the boss says, I want to give you something. I want to pay you. And she then gave me that number on the piece of paper. And she goes, Pastor, look at this. I looked at it, and it was a nice big number. She says, This is what they gave me. It's exactly double of what I made the year before. Come on. Come on. Now, what happened? The Bible says that when the word abides you, because I asked her, I said, well, how did this happen? She goes, okay, pastor, you taught 
10 weeks on tithing called Let There Be Meat in My House. And then you taught, this is what she told me. Then you taught the money game in January for six weeks on business principles. And I decided to actually believe what you taught and to practice the principles you said. And I declared, and that's why I'm here today. Come on, hallelujah. In other words, when the word abides, you begin to win. Notice what it says. I want to show you this verse, Acts 20, 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. See, the word of God is actually alive. It's actually a person. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 12, that the word is quick. It means it's alive. In other words, it's not a normal word. It's actually living. And the Bible says, if you will quote it, the Bible says it will build you up and give you an inheritance. Now, why did that happen to her? Because she believed the man of God spoke it, claimed the promise. Year later, she got it because the word of God built her up and gave her an inheritance. Amen. Why am I quoting that? Because I'm having an offer right now? No. You need to understand when a man of God speaks, and if you will come to the level he tells you, you'll get the blessing. There was a reason why I give a number, because that was the number given. And other people experience the same thing. Another person, in fact, I had them pray for over the congregation. Favor galore, those who did it. Favor galore. Principle number five. Oh, wait, number four, right? Are we on number five? Thank you. Repeat after me. Say, beware what comes out of your mouth. Ooh, ooh, look at your neighbor and say, beware what comes out of your mouth. God, listen to me, will only do what we talk about. In fact, whatever you have today is what you spoke about yesterday. If you don't like where you're at today, it's a result of what you spoke. So, where's that in the Bible? Okay, I'll show you because I hear someone saying, show me that in the Bible, Pastor. Okay, Numbers 14, verse 35, saying to them, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. God says, whatever you say in my ears, that's what I'll do to you. It's coming to you. Uh-oh. God promised the children of Israel the Holy Land, a land of milk and honey. He brought them 400 years out of slavery. Notice Exodus 3.8. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good land, into a large, into a land flowing with milk and honey. Unto the place of the Canaanites, and to the Hittites, and to the Amorites, and the Pesites, Parasites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Mosquito Bites. No, I'm just seeing, seeing if you're awake. <laughs> so why did God bring them out of slavery? To literally, to get the Nephilim, the giants, out of the land, these 35 foot tall people. We, we talked about that. And it was miraculous to give them that land where the grapes were so big, it actually took men just to hold grapes. Now, I don't know, when I go to the store, I don't need me and Caleb to carry our grapes. These grapes were so big, it literally took, just for a handful, two men to carry. That's a blessing. Amen? But Israel kept, compla- Israel kept complaining to God, and they claimed that God only brought them out every time they got into trouble. Every time. You brought us out of here because you just want to kill us in the desert. They said this every time. Let me show you a few of them. Exodus 14, 11 through 12. And they said to Moses, because there was no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt us with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? 
For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. They said this to God every time they didn't get what they wanted. You only brought us out of here because you want to kill us. And you know what? You say the same thing sometimes. You want to kill me, God. That's why I'm going through this. That's why this one died. That's why you just want me to die. You need to be careful what you're saying because God will be patient. But he will come to a point where he says, well, we'll, let's talk about it. Let's keep looking at this. Look at Exodus 16.3, just to give you another example. And children of Israel said unto him, would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots, when we did eat bread to the full, for you've brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They said, God, you brought us out of just to kill us with hunger. Let me translate this. Man, I remember when I was in the world and I was, you know, I was baller. And now I'm, I'm a loser. Look, God, what you did to me. My life sucks. Translation. Numbers 14, 2 through 3. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children would be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt again? Every time they came in, you brought us out here to kill us, God. You know why? people make statements like that because they want you to feel sorry for them. You know why when you talk to how you're doing and then people talk all the bad because they want you to feel sorry for them. Oh, poor brecito, we say in Spanish. Oh, poor little guy. But let me tell you, even your friends, if that's all you talk about, eventually they'll leave pobrecito alone and get out of your way. Eat, guess what? God's the same way. They told him so many times that you brought us out of here and you know what the final straw was? God says, let's go into the promised land. I have a great land for you. In fact, I'm going to send 12 witnesses to show you how great it is. Well, you know the story. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, the 20-year-old and the 40-year-old said, it's full of giants, but we can take it. The other 10 witnesses said what? We're going to die. Those dudes are so big, we're like grasshoppers. And they were. And you know what the children of Israel did? You brought us out here just to kill us. And you know what God did? He finally got sick and tired of them complaining. And he says, what you, in fact, that's the verse I quoted. Here's what he finally said. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do it to you. I'm going to make your prophecy come to pass today. You have completely over and over com and complained and said I was no good, and that all I wanted to do was kill you, that that's the only reason why I brought you out of the wilderness. Well, today, I'm going to make you prophets, and I'm going to make that come to pass. Verse 29, your carcass, this is from God, shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your own number from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless, you shall not come into this land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, but your little ones, which you have, which you said should be a prey, then will I bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, listen to the language, your, your dirty bodies, not even my beloved people, your carcass, your nasty flesh, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Remember, it should only take 11 days, but now, or 12 days, 11 to 12 days, but now it's going to be 40 years, and bear your whoredoms. 
He goes, you guys are a bunch of whores. He says, God, I'm, he doesn't just say, I'm going to kill you. He says, but you're nothing but a bunch of whores. You don't want that kind of word. You don't want that prophecy. You're nothing but a whore. Until your carcass, no, again, the third time, be wasted in the wilderness. After the numbers of the days in which you search the land, even 40 days, each day for a year, shall bear your iniquity, even 40 years, and you shall know my breach of promise. And he says, I'm taking back my promise. You know God can take away his promise? He can't do it fully. He says, temporarily for 40 years, I'm not going to keep my promise. This is crazy. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there shall they die. And he finishes it with it, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do it to you. You've said that I'm an evil man in the heavens, and I brought you out just to kill you. Well, today you're going to die. I'm going to let your carcasses fall in the wilderness. And you know what's crazy? Forty years later, no one over 40 went into that new land. All of them died. In fact, there was only one 40-year-old. Who was that? No, Joshua. The rest were 20. There was only one old man who was 80. Who was that? And Caleb, when they go, here's the amazing part. Now you know why they were allowed to go. Caleb was the only old man. No one was, oldest man was Joshua 40 and then him at 80, double the age, and everyone else was 20 and younger. A nation of 20-year-olds took over the promised land. Well, come on, there's a revelation. There. I hope you got what I'm saying here. You think God's going to do it again these last days? He's tired of us old people complaining. You only brought us out to kill us. He said, you know what? Okay, die. Young people, let's go. Let's take the land. Amen. Come on. But there's, a, there's always a few old dudes. Come on, talk to me. And Caleb says, oh, no, no, no. I may be 80, but I'm stronger now. Then I when I was at 20. And he says, you know what? Give me the land. What's the mountain with the biggest giants? And can you imagine this vejito, as we say in Spanish, this old dude? And the giants are saying, okay, who's, which one of the 20-year-olds coming? And here comes this old guy. And he literally starts slashing their knees and the wrists. And the Bible says he took the giants that were the biggest in the mountains. He was running up mountains, slashing giants. Dang, that's the kind of old, like Alice, zinc. Alice out there in the wilderness, witnessing the people. We can't get young people, so God has to use Alice, Zinc, Caleb. Come on. See, don't, so, I'm, so I'm not despising all the old people. There's some old people that put us to shame. And you got a few Joshua's. A few people like me. I'm in my 40s, but I'll out-worship you all. Run you in this race anytime. Give it to me. Bring it on. You know why? Because I'm going to get what God promised me. I'm not going to negate my promise saying, God, you only brought me out here to, to, to die. You only allowed my family to die because you want me to die. Oh, Lord, you only brought this sickness because you want to kill me. Listen, he ain't feeling sorry for you. And I know that ain't great English, but it, you understand the lingo? He is not moved by you talking about your pity party. Get out of your pity party and move into the promises of God and decree a thing. Get out of your darkness and speak light in the name of Jesus. Wow. Look at Caleb. I got to read his confession. Numbers 1330. When they're about to go into the promised land 40 years later, he's 80. Only old man there. And Caleb stilled the people. What does that mean? He got them quiet before Moses. And he said, let us go at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. This was actually said in his witness before the punishments. 
Jesus confirms this truth in the New Testament in the parable of the talents. What truth? The one I just said. Be careful what you say because you'll get what you say. In Luke 19.22, look what Jesus says. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking that which I laid did not down, and reaping where I did not sow. Did you hear what he said? Out of your own mouth I'm going to judge you, Jesus says. In other words, what you said. And if you know the parable, one man was given one talent, another man was given, or, or one was given five, one was given two, one was given one. The guy doubled it, got 10, right? He says, oh, well done. The one with five, um, um, or the one with two um, doubled it to five. And the guy who had one talent did do nothing with it. What did he do? He buried it, remember? And, and Jesus looks at him and goes, why didn't you at least put it in the bank? You could have at least got me some interest. But you truly are a nonprofit organization. <laughs> and the guy, you know what he said? He blamed Jesus. He says, well, I knew that you like to make money where you did nothing for it. I knew that you're a guy who liked to get things and you did nothing for it. And therefore, I put it in the ground because if you weren't going to do anything, why should I do anything? That sounds like some Christians today. And you know what God, Jesus said? Out of your mouth, I will judge thee. Since I'm such a rude and austere man, that's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to make your own prophecy come to pass. I'm going to treat you bad right now and take that which you have and give it to another because I'm such a rude guy and I want to profit where I've not sowed. The guy went to heaven, but he had no crown. Did you know that's talking about us? A lot of you will make it to heaven, but if you got that kind of attitude, you just say whatever you think. Well, I told the truth, and that's your excuse for talking the way you talk? Well, I told him the truth. Oh, wait till you stand before the truth and see what happens with that kind of attitude, what he says when you, well, I told the truth. He'll shut you down. Your eyes will melt. Come on. You'll melt before the Lord. Your tongue will be still. You won't even be able to talk. Silent. See, so we got to watch what we say. The enemy is constantly using words to conquer you. Look at Psalm 55.3. Because of the voice of the enemy. Because the enemy is constantly coming against you. He accuses us day and night. Revelation 12.10, which accuses him before God day and night. The enemy is constantly battling, battling you in your mind, in your thought process. Constantly accusing you. Constantly, the voice of the enemy is oppressing you. Oh, you know, this relationship didn't last because you're a loser. You're this, you're a that. You're, this happened to you because you, listen, it rains on the good and on the unjust, the just and unjust. Not everything that happens to you is because your fault. Sometimes things just don't work out. Let me tell you, you need to hear that. Not everything you did is your fault. Now, some of it is. Move on and, and ask Jesus to, and repent. But not all of it. Amen. I want to show you this. He uses, the enemy will use two types of voices. Pay attention. I know you're getting sleepy now, but pay attention. The enemy uses two kinds of voices, the good and the bad. Let me give you an example of the bad. This is going to blow your mind. I want you to pay attention. Do you remember what Jesus, I mean, we already went over this. In Matthew 4, 3 and 4, 6, the temptation of Christ. Also in Luke 4, 3 and 4, 9, the temptation of Christ in that chapter. Twice. The devil tried to place doubt in the identity of Christ by asking, you already know this, if thou be the what? So according to the scripture, two times in that temptation, if you are the son of God, I don't believe your identity. I don't care if an angel spoke. I don't care if God spoke. I don't believe it. If you're the son of God. Here's what's crazy. When Jesus is on the cross, you know what happens? 
The devil literally possesses a man who's watching this and notice what he says. Matthew 27, 40. Now these are people that are watching Jesus on the cross and they don't even realize what they're saying because demons have possessed them. Listen to what they say. And saying, thou that destroyest the temple and build it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Isn't that crazy that the people who are watching Jesus on the cross, Satan literally to his face, if you're the son of God, now it's a group, a crowd mocking him and saying, oh, you said you can bring down the temple and rise up in three days. He says, if thou be the son of God, hearing the same thing at the beginning of his ministry and hearing at the end, what am I saying? The Bible says that the devil accuses the saints of God day and night, night and day, day and night. The devil told Jesus every day he walked on earth, if thou be the son of God, and we see it from the beginning till he was on the cross, I don't believe even now. And you think you're not going to be questioned? Your identity's not going to be challenged? That the devil's not accusing you day and night? A lot of that crap isn't your low self-esteem. A lot of that demonic demon speaking into your mind and heart, questioning, are you a son of God? Are you saved? Can God do this? If Jesus was attacked by his identity till he died, what makes you different? And Jesus was on the cross. Well, don't you remember what John the Baptist said? <laughs> no, he was still quoting the word of God. Right? On the cross, you look at the seven statements, all of them you can find in the word of God. He still was saying, if you're the son, it is written, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's in the scripture. That's in the book of Psalms. He was quoting the book of Psalms even when he said that. That crazy even when he said it is finished all that was in the scripture the only thing that was in the scripture is when he looked at his john and said take care of my mother but everything else was in the scripture but even that's in the scripture because it says honor thy still obeying the scripture go, go ahead and make fun of me go ahead i know i look bad right now but wait till my second coming i'm gonna tear you up i'm not coming as a meek savior i'm coming as rambo part three and i'm gonna tear you up Come on, man. I can't wait for that day. Why? Well, I'm going to be there with them. Revelation 19. We're going to come. We're going to tear it up. No more nice Christians. <laughs> so the devil will use evil people. Notice how he used people to voice his opinions. But he'll also use good people. Peter the apostle, Mark 8.33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. That is so harsh because you don't understand. Jesus had just asked, who do men say that I am? Peter walks up and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, oh my God, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. That's my father speaking to you. Congratulations. Man, I'm so proud of you hearing the voice of the spirit and you're, you're speaking it. Woo! And the next thing Jesus tells him, he goes, by the way, I'm going to be crucified on the cross. And now Peter, thinking now he's Mr. Spirit. No, that's not going to happen. That's not God's will. And Jesus looks at him and goes, get behind me, Satan. Get behind Isn't that crazy? He was just admonished as hearing God's voice. And his next sentence out of his mouth was Satan himself. Speaking through Peter. What's my point? Sometimes great people can pick up and articulate the wrong voice. Even pastors. That's why. Don't go by your experiences, but go by what the word says. 
Don't live your life because I suggest something. Only go by what the word of God says and you can see it. Jesus rebuked Satan and when he discerned that Peter was speaking the voice of the enemy and he straight up said, Satan, some of you need time to look at that person. No, that's not Jesus. That's the devil. Satan, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. Leave that person alone. You shall have whatever you confess. Your words have the power to create. Look at Isaiah 57, 19. I'm about to close. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is afar off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Notice you can create peace or fear with your words. Why? Because what you say today is what you will have tomorrow. If you don't like where you're at, change your words. Let me give you one more verse. Everything you say has consequences. Look at your neighbor and say that. Everything you say has consequences. Come on, look at someone at your side or behind you and say, everything you say has consequences. Whether good or evil. Look at Proverbs 18.20. This one, I thought this was funny. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. The Amplified Version says this. A man's moral self shall be filled with the fruit of his mouth and with the consequence of his words. He must be satisfied, underline that, whether good or or evil. In other words, it declares the scripture that a man's contentment or satisfaction is the consequence of his words. It goes on to say that every man should be satisfied by the words he speaks. In other words, you, the Bible's saying that every one of us in here should be satisfied because we're speaking the right words. What's my point? If you feel like the Rolling Stones and you can't get no satisfaction, change your words. If you're getting no satisfaction, the Bible says you need to change your what? Words. Come on, let's stand in the house, Lord. Let's go. Amen. We're actually early. This is great. Don't look at the time because I might be fooling you. I love you so much. I love this church. You mind if I take off my jacket? It's kind of warm in here. Don't forget that tonight we have code breakers. But there's a lot of people watching us all the way from, literally from Hawaii to New York. And there might be some in here. And I never should take it for granted that there might be someone who doesn't know the Lord. I just want to tell you in one minute short that there are consequences to how you live your life. There is a heaven and there is a hell after you die. Hell is a place of torment. Hell is a place of eternal bliss. How you get there, the Bible says really clearly, there's no other name given among men whereby they must be saved but at the name of Jesus. And then the, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says that if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ that God has raised him from the dead you shall be what? saved you're not saved by what you do but you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross and he took all your sins on the cross for you and if you will profess that with your mouth I don't understand how it works but it does he says he will confess you before heaven and your life will be transformed that's all you gotta do And so if you will just bow your head, close your eyes for a simple moment. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart and the Holy Spirit's drawing you, you can actually feel it. I want you to raise your hand. Go ahead and raise your hand. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, if you've never, raise your hand. I want to give you one, 30 more seconds. 
Now, from what I can see, I don't believe anyone's raised their hand. That's not a bad thing. That just means you're all saved. In fact, why don't you ask your neighbor, ask them, do you know Jesus? If they don't, say, I'll walk up there with you. No, make sure. Come on. Pastor, he's been preaching 40 years. He still not might be saved. Ask him anyways. Amen? And if they're not, come walk with them. But there's a lot of people who hear this by broadcast. There's a lot of people online. Trust me. You might not know Jesus. So we're going to say the sinner's prayer because every service we want to give you an opportunity. Can you help me bring people to Christ? Whoever's listening by any means possible. Let's pray together. Say, Father, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day. Jesus, forgive me. I give you my life. I surrender. I confess you as Lord and Savior. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life. I give myself to you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, give the Lord a hand of praise. If you would like to hear more stern messages like this, I would like to know more about Radiant Life Church. Please visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com or download our free Radiant Life Church Arizona phone app at your Android or iPhone store. With it, you can connect with us, submit prayer requests, watch past church services or live streaming services, download sermons, check church bulletin for important events, register for events, access our online multimedia store, give financially, and much, much more. I would also like to take the time to encourage you to take your first step in embarking on your spiritual journey with us by taking our new members class called Radiant 101. You can do this by tapping the form tab on our Radiant Life Church phone app, select new members class, and fill out the form. Or register online at our church website at radiantlifeaz.com. Under the connection column, select new members class and fill out the form there. In response, we will contact you soon thereafter with all the information you need for a positive experience. Again, thank you for visiting us, and I look forward to meeting you in person. God bless.